When the, the whole series on conflict resolution centers around really the idea found in Galatians 5.15, which says, But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Now, I'm not a chicken farmer, but I know a number of you are. And I'm told that chickens have a bad habit of liking to peck at one another. And sometimes it's just, you know, the natural pecking order. That, that's a literal thing where there's, a, you know, the chief and the, all the others fall in order. But there's times where that pecking is harmful. They yank feathers out. Sometimes yank flesh out. And sometimes when they see blood, then other, the other chickens get in there and start picking on that one chicken to make matters worse. Why do they do this? Well, some suggest boredom. Some suggest the color red attracts their attention. Uh, obviously, there's a natural pecking order. Some suggest nutritional deficiency. Some suggest stress or illness that the chickens can detect when there's one ill and try to pick on that one. Uh, ultimately, only the Lord knows. But one chicken farmer summarized it this way. They just like to peck at each other sometimes. Now, we're not here to be better chicken farmers. What does it have to do with, with people, with Christians? Sometimes we act like those chickens. We like to peck at each other. Whether it's because of boredom, whether because it makes us feel good, whether because of the defensive nature, the, the idea of pecking at one another is all too familiar to the way that people treat each other sometimes. In Alexander Strzok, in his book, If You Bite and Devour One Another, he makes this very connection. And I'll just quote him here. Some people like to peck at others. They love to find fault, criticize, complain, and condemn. Fault-finding critics have an amazing ability to gather a flock of contentious complainers, and they can wield fearsome, destructive power in a church. They seem to think that they're doing God and the angels a great service by pointing out and criticizing others' faults. Scripture, however, says otherwise. Scripture tells us not to do that. Now, there are four criticism-controlling disciplines that you need to adopt so that you can maintain unity for the glory of God and, and be a blessing to those around you instead of being a uh, uh, really a curse to them. And, and really, these uh, the ability to control your control your criticism helps you be a better witness for Christ. And also helps your own spiritual growth. So there's many reasons to do this. So to control sinful criticism, the first thing I want you to hear this morning is we need to stop speaking evil of one another. To control sinful criticism, you must stop speaking evil of one another. And I don't want you to take my word for it, so open up your Bibles to the book of James. James chapter 4. James is a very practical book, so we turned to it multiple times already in this series, and I'm, I no doubt we'll be referencing it at other times. James chapter 4, and look at verses 11 and 12. Let me just read those to you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now here, James forbids the Lord's people from speaking against one another. Literally, you could say it's slandering one another. And, and we know that he is speaking here to Christians because he addresses them as, as brothers. Look at that. He says, do not speak against one another, brethren. So he's addressing them as brothers, as, as, as fellow uh, uh, walkers, fellow disciples who are walking and follow, after Christ, following Christ. So this is proof again that those who are born again, that are following Christ, don't always do what we're supposed to do. It, it's, it's easy for us to, to go uh, after sin. The, the new birth changes our heart and sets the... 
uh, changes the direction of the course of our lives, but it doesn't immediately remove all sin. And you know this on a practical basis. That the new birth gives us the ability to follow Christ and to choose obedience, whereas before that we were enslaved to sin. So don't be surprised that the world is full of criticism. But Christians must live differently. Our lives must reflect what Christ uh, wants us to emulate and reflect of his life. This means that we are to be continually putting off sin and putting on righteousness. And applied to the particular issue of criticism, we are putting off that sinful criticism and putting on constructive speech in the way that we relate to one another. Now, James deals here with the sinful practice of, of slander or speaking against one another. LSB uses the word slander. Literally, do not slander one another. What does it mean to slander one another? What well, to slander one another means to speak against or to speak evil of someone. It means to speak degradingly of someone. Slander includes degrading or derogatory talk about another. It, it includes false criticism, false accusation, defamation of character, and speech that puts others down. Now, it's helpful sometimes if we see an example of what slander might look like. And, and we see an example of this in, uh, in Scripture. There's more than one example, but what I want to draw you to is in 2 Samuel 9. And here we see a little-known character called Ziba. Now, Ziba was a servant of King Saul. And after King Saul and Jonathan and, and many of Saul's sons were all killed off, right? then um, David rose as king, was anointed as king, and he wanted to show favor to Jonathan. Remember, there's a special relationship between David and Jonathan. Uh, Saul's son. And so in 2 Samuel 9, David inquires as to whether there's anybody left in the house of Saul that he could show favor to. And a servant of Saul named Ziba is brought to David. And David asks him, is there anybody left in the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? And Ziba says, well, there is the uh, the son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, who has a, had a problem with his feet. He, when, he, when all the uh, king's sons were being killed, he was taken off by a nurse, dropped accidentally, and something happened to his foot, and he was not able to walk properly the rest of his life. So David asked that Mephibosheth be brought to him. Of course, as the only living son of King Saul, Mephibosheth was fearful when he came to David originally, fearing that David might put him to death, but that was not David's intent. David's intent was to show honor to him. And so in that whole series of events, David takes everything that was Saul's. So Saul was king. He takes everything that was Saul's and gives it to Mephibosheth. And he tells Ziba, Ziba, you take care of it for him. He can't do that. You take care of it. In fact, I'm going to have Mephibosheth come to my daily meal. So Mephibosheth dined with King David, and David showed him great kindness. Ziba was supposed to take care of everything. He was supposed to harvest the crops and make sure everything was, was taken care of and all the benefit would go to Mephibosheth. Well, that's 2 Samuel 9. In 2 Samuel 16 is when Absalom rises up against David. And so David chooses to flee the city. And those who are loyal to David flee the city. And Ziba shows up fleeing the city. And Ziba shows up with quite a bit of help. He, he, he provides donkeys for the king's household. He provides 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, a jug of wine. So he's, he's providing resources to the king. But Ziba comes without Mephibosheth. And David said, where is Mephibosheth? Remember, he's the son of Saul. There's a rebellion going on. There could be that Mephibosheth is part of that rebellion. And so that's why David's saying, where is Mephibosheth? But Ziba tells a lie. He slanders. Ziba says this. 
Ziba says, Behold, he is staying in Jerusalem. For he said, Today by the house of Israel, the, sorry, today the house of Israel returned the kingdom to, of my father to me. So what is he saying? Ziba is saying, Oh, Mephibosheth stayed in Jerusalem because he has plans to recapture the throne. Well, you know, in other words, implying while while you and Absalom are like fighting it out, right? then Mephibosheth's going to take the throne. So what does David do? He's, he's fleeing the country. He doesn't have a lot of time to get information, but rather than take time and wisely make a decision about it, what does he do? He says, everything that is Mephibosheth's is now yours. He immediately assumes that, that Ziba is telling him the truth and he takes everything away from, from Mephibosheth and gives it to Ziba. Now fast forward again to the end of that rebellion. In 2 Samuel 19, Absalom is dead. David is returning to Jerusalem. Those that were disloyal to David are coming out to David to meet David and seeking mercy. That they that David would show them mercy and that David would not uh, kill them. And who comes out to meet him but Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth comes out to meet David. So David very well could be uh, assuming that everything that Ziba said was true. And here is Mephibosheth coming to ask for mercy. But that's not the case. When David sees Mephibosheth, he asked him why he didn't leave Jerusalem with him. And he says this in 2 Samuel 19, verses 26 and 27. Oh, my Lord, the king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride it and go on with the king to, and go with the king because your servant is lame. Moreover, he has slandered your servant to my Lord, the king. But my Lord, the king is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is right in your sight. See what Ziba did? Ziba told Mephibosheth, now you're lame. Don't, don't worry about it. You stay here in Jerusalem. I'll be your representative. I'll go out with David. That's essentially what he's telling him. But then he tells David a different story. So why is he doing this? Because he wants everything Mephibosheth has. And he got it, at least temporarily. And, and unfortunately, David didn't take time to investigate the matter thoroughly. And then he, he didn't know who was telling the truth. And he just said, well, you know, you know, half of it is for Ziba and half of it is Mephibosheth. But Mephibosheth was actually in mourning for David. The scriptures say that he hadn't cared for himself. He had all the signs of physical signs of someone who was in mourning for David. So he seems very genuine that his concern was for David. And and Mephibosheth responds, let Ziba have it all. I don't care. I don't even want it. I'm just satisfied that you're okay. That's his response. Unfortunately, David didn't rectify the matter as far as far as we know but unfortunately many christians are in the habit of slandering other other christians other brothers and sisters in christ thinking that it's the normal thing to do and and before we were redeemed it was normal look slander is just part of life in a fallen world you see it in politics you see it on the news you see it in sports. It's just all around us. It's very, very natural. But it is not proper for Christians to speak evil against one another. Slander is listed as one of the works of the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12.20. And Jesus says slander flows from a sinful heart in Matthew 15.19. Alexander Strzok says that slander is truly a devilish force for community destruction. Listen to that. It's truly a devilish force force for community destruction. The Holy Spirit does not lead Christians to slander, to speak evil of one another. He doesn't lead us to be self-righteous or fault finders or harsh critics. Now think about what the Lord wants us to do regarding speech with one another. It's not just a New Testament thing. If you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus twenty sixteen. Exodus twenty is where the Lord provides the Ten Commandments. Look at verse sixteen. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. 
You should not fall, bear false witness against your neighbor. It's the ninth commandment. And, and the Lord provides additional instructions later on in, in Leviticus. Turn to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, I, I, the Lord your, your God, am holy. For I, Yahweh, am holy. So he's calling his people to be like him. And a sense of holiness is a sense of righteousness here. And everything that follows are ways in which the people were to emulate and, and to uh, show, to be an example of how God is holy. They were to be a witness nation to the worlds, uh, to the nations around them who were unholy. Now go down to verse 16. Again, this is continuing practical ways in which the people were to be holy. Verse 16, you shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor. You shall not incur sin because of him. So there's a sense of which we're not talking about the idea of reproof. Reproof is needed at times. Here we're talking about slander. We're talking about harmful criticism of one another. That's what the Lord forbids. And he forbids it in the Old Testament. And he certainly forbids it in the New Testament. When we studied Titus, you might remember Titus 3 verses 1 and 2. Read this way. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one. To slander no one. James is just talking about your brother. right? Paul widens it. He says, slander no one. That's really hard, beloved, especially in our world right now, especially the way our politicians are acting and the news is acting and everybody seems to have a secret hidden agenda to, you know, gaining power over you or taking what is yours financially. It's very easy to go into slander. But the scriptures say, slander no one, but especially don't slander your brother or sister in Christ who is part of the local church. So commit yourself not to speak evil of one another. Even when you perceive that the person has truly done evil against you, you will honor the Lord if you commit yourself not to speak of these evils to others. Uh, Alexander Strzok gives us a good example of this principle at work in real life. And I just want to quote him here. He says, our church was started by a group of families who left their former church due to frustration with many unaddressed issues and serious problems. None of these families intended to start a new church, but a year later they started to meet regularly for Bible study. From that seed, a new congregation grew. Early on, the leaders made a covenant between themselves not to criticize their former church, not to speak evil of any of its members, and not to carry on any form of verbal warfare. They knew that criticism would damage many family relationships and destroy any hope for future unity. Within seven years, the two churches were in pleasant fellowship and able to work together for the gospel. This is a good example of how unity can be maintained or restored when Christians refuse to slander or unnecessarily criticize. I find it remarkable that I joined the church after it had been meeting for six years and heard nothing about the division from the previous church until nearly two years after that. What, what a good example that sets. There is so much criticism that is just not necessary. Not necessary at all. So when, when someone has hurt you, do not speak evil of them. Even in your heart. You know, slander begins in the heart. Speaking evil about someone begins in the heart. And God is concerned about the heart. Certainly we want to stop it at the speech level. But we want to stop it at where it begins. And that's the heart level. So God has given you, if you're a Christian, God has given you the resources you need in order to stop slander at the place it begins in the heart. Stop speaking evil of another in the heart. And that's because he's given you his Holy Spirit within you. He's transformed your heart so that you have a, have a heart, you have a mind that can respond to these things. And he's given you word, his word, which is clear instruction on what to do. It. 
Now, understand that if you're not a believer in Christ, this is going to be an impossible, impossible mission for you. You're not going to be able to stop slander or stop speaking evil, even in your heart, because you don't have that capacity. You are enslaved to sin. So I just want to say here that if that's you, if you find yourself just unable to control slander, maybe it's because you don't belong to Christ. But don't lose hope. Recognize that slander is a sin, that God is going to punish, but he is also a God of mercy who is quick to forgive to everyone who calls upon his name. So if you will just confess your sin to him and ask him to forgive you, he'll forgive you. He'll give you that new heart and the ability to fight slander. That doesn't mean fighting slander is easy. It's not. But he will give you the ability to successfully fight that fight. So to control sinful criticism, commit ourselves, we must stop speaking evil of one another. Just stop slandering one another. The second point this morning is this. To control sinful anger, you must stop groaning against one another. And that's, that's a translation the LSB uses for James 5, chapter 5, verse 9. So go back to James. We're in James chapter 4. Now go back to James 5, or go to James 5, and looking at verse 9. And the NASB reads this way, James 5, 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. The LSB reads this way. Do not groan, brothers, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. That, that idea of groaning really captures in a vivid way what's going on inside your heart. That groaning might be audible, or it might not be. That's in your heart. You're just groaning inside against one another. So groaning is what happens, you know, if you get a sharp pain in your stomach and you might groan. It's almost involuntary. It's that idea, except here, it's not involuntary. Scripture is commanding us not to groan. Um, To groan in this context means to express discontent or to complain. So that's that's really hard. Do not complain against one another. Now, the ESV and the New King James Version translate this as do not grumble against one another. You can see the complaining, grumbling, groaning. They're all, they're all interrelated, different ways to translate. Basically, the, the same idea. Um, the old King James Version expresses it this way. I, I like, this is kind of picturesque. He says, grudge not against one another. You know, when you, somebody hurts you and you hold a grudge? He said, grudge not, you know? So uh, that's, that's what we're talking about. Now, the various ways that this can be translated help us get a kind of a grip on the prohibition that James provides us in, in 5.9. Do not do it. Groaning, grumbling, complaining, and grudging against one another is strictly forbidden. Now, beloved, I'm stepping on my toes as I step on your toes because it's ultimately not me that's doing it, but, but the Lord. He does not want his people to be complainers or those who hold grudges or or gripe against one another. Groaning and complaining and grumbling against one another leads to quarreling and conflicts. The Edmund Hebert explains that groaning and, and grumbling against one another, quote, involves a feeling of criticism and fault finding directed against others and reflects itself in smoldering resentment, unquote. It's kind of picturesque. You know, it's inside. That what's going on in your heart is just smoldering there. And if you don't get a grip on it for the glory of God, it's going to come out in your mouth. It's going to cause you to say things that you're going to regret. And it's going to cause conflict. If there is already conflict, it's going to make the conflict worse. Groaning and grumbling are like a contagious disease. That if you don't get it, in its early stages, it's going to spread to your entire personality. You're going to become a complained person. And it's going to start spreading to others. And complaining and griping and groaning divides families, ruins families, ruins family relationships, and ruins church relationships. It ruins work relationships. It's just bad. Now, the Twin Towers at the World Trade Center took 14 years to complete from initial proposal to final completion. How long did it take to destroy them? 
less than two hours. Right? And we can debate why they fell and all that, and scientists and architects do that. I'm not debating that. I'm just saying they fell in two hours. 14 years to build. Right? Families and churches are like that. Take a long time to build. Take a long time to build those healthy relationships. But with criticism, if it's unchecked, comes within a church, it can destroy it quickly. If criticism like this comes within a marriage, you could destroy a solid marriage, even if one's been going on for decades, you can destroy it very quickly. You can erode it. Absolutely destroy it. Now, the Lord can bring healing in that. But I just want us to be warned, this is something we must not engage in. It's not as if we it's okay to engage in it a little bit. Both those passages from James says, don't do it at all. Don't, don't do it at all. Look at Numbers 11. Again, we'll just go back to the Old Testament just a minute. Numbers chapter 11. Moses is held up as, and rightly so, as really a father of our faith, as a man of God who stood against Pharaoh, who led the Israelites out of Egypt, and their intent was to lead them into the promised land. That, that didn't happen because of their sin. But you know, at one point, Moses was ready to throw in the towel. He was just pleading with God just to take his life. Why would he do that? Grumbling and complaining. Look at Numbers 11. I'll just pick it up in verse 1. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. The rabble who were among them, notice how the Lord described them, the rabble. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish. We, which we used to eat free in Egypt. Notice that? They were enslaved, but they had the fish for free. Such a distorted view of history. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, and the onions and the garlic, their mouths were just watering. But all that they have is this manna. Is there nothing to eat except this manna? Now the mander was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of bedellium. And the people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in the mortar and boil it in the pot and make cakes with it. And its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. Now Moses heard the people weeping. That's how bad they were complaining. They were weeping throughout their families. Each man at the doorway of his tent. Hey, why was he at the doorway of his tent? I don't know why, but this is, this is Mark's interpretation. Complaining had spread so badly throughout his family. His kids were complaining. His wife was complaining. And he wanted out. But he was responsible. That's, that's in the white pages, okay? That's not in Scripture. Just be clear about that. So Moses said to the Lord, he, Moses heard this and was greatly, greatly displeased. The Lord was greatly displeased. And so Moses said to the Lord in verse 11, Why have you been so hard on your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all those people on me? So now Moses is really just complaining to the Lord. Right? So there's a sense of which that's the right place to complain to. And it, and, but you have to do it with the right heart. I'm not sure that Moses had the right heart, but God responded compassionately nonetheless. Moses said, was it I who conceived all these people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a, a nursing infant? to the land which you swore to your fa to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people because it is too burdensome for me. So if you are going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. If I have found favor in your sight, do not let me see my wretchedness. Just pleads with God, take him out. Now God chooses not to answer that way. God is compassionate. And, and God worked in Moses' life and the Israelites', Israelites' lives to deal with their complaint as well as sustain Moses. One of the ways in which he sustained Moses is providing 70 
elders to, to help him and, and to guide him. But the point I'm, I want to illustrate here is the devastating impact of complaining and grumbling and speaking falsehood, whether it's against God or against your neighbor, your brothers and sisters. Can I remind us of Philippians 2.14, which says, do most things without grumbling or complaining, right? And the ladies are studying Philippians. Is that what it says? Most things? No. It's all things, beloved. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Without grumbling or disputing. So when, sa- when someone says something that hurts you or does something against you, um, be on guard against grumbling and complaining. There's a place to seek justice and righteousness. And that um, this is not speaking against that at all. This is in conjunction with that. And in the future messages, we'll talk about seeking reconciliation. You know, how do you how you do that? Here, we're just talking about, about guarding your heart. Do not complain. Do not complain. This includes things like when church leaders make decisions that you're not happy with, or your husband makes a decision you're not happy with, or your child makes a decision you're not happy with. Don't grumble or complain. Don't speak against them, even in your heart. Again, these things are not easy to do. We are all guilty of these things. But if we want to be more like Christ, we've got to commit ourselves to do this and guard our hearts. Remember, it's easy to criticize. It's easy to grumble. Those are works of the flesh. They just flow from the old self. Right? If we're going to commit ourselves to honor Christ, we have to guard our thoughts. We have to commit ourselves to, to guard our attitudes, guard our hearts, not grumble, not complain, not speak against our brothers or sister. Right? That is the Lord's command. So to control sinful criticism, we must stop speaking evil of one another. And you've got to stop groaning, complaining against one another. And there's one more sinful activity that you must stop in order to control sinful criticism, and that is you must stop judging one another. You must stop judging. To control sinful criticism, stop judging one another. Now, to help you understand why you must stop judging one another, we're going to revisit the two passages in James we've already looked at. So go back to James 5. James chapter 5, verse 9. And let's read it again. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Now, both James 5, 9 and James 4, verses 11 to 12, which we'll look at again in a moment, both of these passages relate the idea of, ju- of, of speaking against your brother, criticism, and judgment. Notice that James 5.9 is written in a context here where believers are experiencing injustice. We don't take, have time to look at it, but if you, if you go look at, at, at James 5, uh, verses 1 to 6, he's, he's talking about how people, even brothers, in this case they claim to be brothers, they would claim to be Christians, but their actions show differently. But, but these would be within the fellowship. I mean, you expect some persecution from unbelievers, but these are people who claim to be following God. But they were persecuting their brethren severely. So you can see that in verses 1 to 6. So James says this. He gives us command not to complain. And the two people that are, have gone through injustice. They've, they've gone through injustice. And he's saying, don't complain against one another. You know, verse 7 connects that, these two ideas together with the, with the connector there. Therefore, because of the suffering, therefore be patient. Be patient. Be patient. Until what? The coming of the Lord. Right? So that's one of the ways in which you back off that criticism. You back off judging one another by realizing the Lord is, is near. The Lord is near and He is going to be judged. He is going to judge. In fact, Verse 9 says that, Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. I mean, his return is imminent. He's got things under full control. The judge knows how to, to bring about perfect justice. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need my help. He's right there. Let him handle it. And that, this, is, this is what James is exhorting us to. 
So why not? Why wouldn't we complain? I mean, it, it, today in today's world, with us all the social injustice that's going on, right? People are complaining. That's the thing to do. You riot in the streets. Demand your rights. Demand that something be fixed. Right? So understand the Lord wants righteousness and justice to be done more than anyone on this earth. In fact, all of us combined don't equate to the same amount of desire that God has to bring about righteousness. From a human perspective, we wouldn't blame people from complaining in circumstances like these that have gone through true injustice. But if we want to honor God, we must not judge. Why? Because the judge is at the door. In other words, he's saying is, even though you've gone through this injustice, if you go about complaining against one another, guess what's going to happen to you? The Lord's going to have to deal with you. Yes, those people have sinned, and the Lord's going to deal with them. But if you don't commit yourself to do what is walk, to do what is right, walk in righteousness, the Lord's going to have to deal with your sin. And the Lord has this has this really uh, insightful way of dealing with some of our smaller sins. And I'll use that, and I can quote, our smaller sins. All right? Dealing with those first before he deals with the major sins that we see elsewhere as we tend to be focused on. They're major sins, but... God wants his people to be holy, so he often deals with us first. So basically, James is saying, recognize that that you're going to be judged if you criticize, judge your brother. And and notice also that, that James, in both places, connects the idea of complaining with judging. Right? Two ways it's judged. One is that the judge is at the door. That's, that's the first way. But understand... That, that the Lord um, the Lord is going to judge you for your complaining. Now, when we talk about judgment and believers, you're quick to probably should, your mind should be going to, but I thought my sins were paid for in Christ. They are. So if you are a genuine believer in Christ, this judgment isn't, gonna, isn't a judgment of sin. It isn't a loss of salvation or anything like that. We fully uphold the fact that when Christ died, he said it's finished, the payment for sin is done, it's done. No more payment for sin. Hallelujah. Right? So what is this? Well, this is the judgment that, that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3, where he talks about we're all going to appear before the Lord and give an account for how we live. Right? And, and that, that, that judgment, if you will, that examination before our Lord, the Lord's going to examine our lives to see what we've done with our lives. And, and, and Paul talks about there in 1 Corinthians 3, in verses 13 and 15, how some are going to be to survive that judgment, that examination before the Lord with nothing except their lives. They will be saved, but nothing. So very little to show. So I, that, that's what James is talking about. He's saying, he, he's saying the judge is at the door, right? Do what is right so that you don't lose your reward, which is another way to, to, to put this. And in John, Second uh, John 8, uh, the Apostle John mentions this as well. He says, you know, he wants us to receive a full reward. So he exhorts um, his readers to obedience so they receive a full reward and they don't lose the reward. So if you grumble and complain, the Lord is going to have to deal with your sin in addition to dealing with the sins of those who acted wickedly against you. And, and judgment for groaning against one another is needed because all grumbling and complaining is, is sin. Now, I also want us to see that our grumbling and complaining is really ultimately an attempt to take God's place. Now we don't look at it that way. I know you're faithful believers. You're you're you know with, meeting with the body of Christ on New Year's Day, and you might have stayed up late to celebrate the New Year's, and you're tired, but you made an effort to come here anyway. Right? So none of you are going to say, you know, I'm going to take God's place. I, under, I understand that. But I want you to see the logical flow of a critical heart. The logical flow of a critical heart ends up taking God's place. He's the judge. He's at the door. Why not just take a step back and let God take care of it? Right? Instead, we want to step forward and we want to take care of it ourselves. We want to take care of it ourselves. And, and to see this connection between slandering and judging of others, go to James 4, where it's, I think the connection is a little bit clear. In verse 11. Let me read that again. Do not speak against one another, brethren. 
He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, notice the connection there, speaks against his brother or judges his brother, those aren't two separate things. Those are two different ways of describing the same action. The action is that of speaking against another. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. So notice how how James is bringing in the law here. When we speak against a brother, we're judging a brother. But when we speak against a brother and judge the brother, we're actually speaking against what? The law and judging the law. What is he doing here? Well, when we criticize someone for them sinning against us, what are we doing? We're breaking the ninth commandment. So we're just setting aside the ninth commandment and saying, oh, that doesn't apply because this person already sinned against me, therefore I have license to sin. You don't logically think this way, but this is what this is this the this is the outflow of our decisions. So James is 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 actually capitalizing on that, that his logical flow, and he's saying, You actually criticize the law, and in fact you become a judge of the law. Meaning you're saying, Well, that that command to love your neighbor, to not slander your neighbor, that, that no longer applies. And here's why. And you begin justifications in your head. Right? We're all really good at justifying our own sin. And so we justify our own sin and we, we go down that path. And he says, if you're a judge of the law, you are actually the giver of the law. But, but that's not true. He says, if you, are, if, sorry, if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. In other words, you're not the person under the law, you're the person over the law. But of course, that's not right, is it? Because he says that. There at verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. The one who is able to perfectly judge, that is. He's the one to judge. He will redeem those who who follow him, and he will judge those who have sinned against him and sinned against others. That's what he's saying there. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy, but he ends with this, who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you? Just ask yourself, when you're tempted to grumble, complain, ask yourself the question, James, personalize it. Who am I? Who am I to judge my neighbor? In other words, by what authority? Because that's what we're doing. We create our own authority to judge them. Scripture says don't. So submit yourself to the word of God. Do not judge your brother. Now, note this was, this command is given on the heels of verse 10. Verse 10 says this, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So when you judge another, pride is creeping in. You think that you're in a place where you can you can accurately judge that person, but God's wanting us to actually be humble. Take a step back, recognizing the Lord is, is the judge and he needs to deal with us, and we are not. Now, I want to clarify something. I'm not talking about here, and neither is James, about lovingly confront, confronting one another's sins. Uh, that is a commanded practice. That's not optional, and we'll get to that later on in pursuing reconciliation. So, you know, Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, or Colossians 1.28, or Titus 1.3. There's lots of passages that talk about confronting sin. So we're not talking about that. So when James says, don't judge one another, don't condemn one another, he's not saying don't lovingly confront. Those are not, those should not be equated with one another. So what kind of judgment is forbidden and inappropriate in the life of a Christian? Let me go through these kind of quickly. First of all, don't judge like the Pharisees. I'm going to try to put like a, a picture, a word picture with these so you can remember them. Don't judge like the Pharisees, right? That, that really flows from, from Matthew chapter 7. Just turn there and read that really quick. Matthew 7, the first five verses. And verse 1 is like the favorite verse of every unbeliever when you evangelize them. Okay? They take it out of context. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck 
out of your eye, and behold, there's a log in your own. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So when, it, when we say about don't judge the Pharisees, we're saying don't judge in some hypocritical fashion, right? And and uh, the Lord gives a, a very, um, I guess, uh, almost exaggerated, well, it is an exaggerated picture of what's going on. Like you, you're trying to get this little teeny speck out of your brother's eye, all the while you've got this log, right? He says a log, you know, you, of course you can't get a log in your eye, but he's, he's exaggerating to, to get that picture into you. Like deal with your own sin and your own sin. And in, in the example, your own sin is like much worse than the other person's sin. But that's not how you see it. That's not how I see it. We always see another person's sin as much worse than ours. We have this little sin. They have some big sin. I got to help them. But God sees the heart. He knows differently. So to go, don't judge like the Pharisees. That, that judgment is forbidden. That hypocritical judgment that, that sees all the relatively small sins of others um, while ignoring the comparatively major sins in our own lives. And Paul warns against this in Romans. He addresses this in Romans chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Therefore, you are without excuse, O man, everyone who passes judgment, for, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you practice the same things. For you practice the same things. So the Pharisees were experts in this. They were doing things that the law clearly forbid, and yet they dealt with all everybody else's sins. They didn't deal with their own. So don't judge like the Pharisees. Secondly, don't judge like the Corinthians. And for this, we'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And again, I'll just cover this very quickly. There's a lot in the, in the context, but um, I want us to see here. Let me just read verses, the first five verses. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am not conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart then each man's praise will come to him from God. So short of it is, the Corinthians were had been influenced by false teachers, probably by the Judaizers, and they were beginning to question Paul's motives. Right? They were beginning to, to cast doubt upon Paul, the apostle. But notice what he tells them in verse 5. Right? He says, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Just stop there. Lots of times, to, to judge like a Corinthian means to, to judge assuming you know someone else's motives. You just know it. And you know sometimes husbands and wives can be guilty of this because you've lived together for many, many years and you like, know the other person and you're like, you, you, just, you just think you know the motives. But we understand only God knows the heart. Only God can read motives. So unless the person tells you their motives, you don't know their motives. You can have a hunch, and maybe the hunch is right. You could be right. The fact is you just don't know that unless the person tells you that. So the Corinthians were judging them. Paul's saying, look, God's going to judge my heart. Even I'm not equipped to really judge myself accurately. The Lord's going to do that. He knows the motives of my heart. So don't judge like the Pharisees. Don't jump to conclusions that you know someone else's motives and judge them. Thirdly, uh, don't judge like the Romans. I'm trying to think of different cities that you can you can um, kind of get a grip on and remember. So don't judge like the Pharisees. Don't judge like the Corinthians. Don't judge like the Romans. What I mean by this, Romans 14. And this extends in a, in a lengthier passage from really all of chapter 14 and into chapter 15. And I won't read it for the sake of time, but it, but it would behoove you to, to read through that. Romans chapter 14, verse, verse 1, through really chapter 15, verse 7. This whole passage is dealing with how the, the Romans were, Roman Christians were criticizing and judging one another in areas that we would call disputable matters. These are areas of conscience. In this case, it's a, it's a matter of which day is like more important, or can we eat this food, or, or not eat this food that's been sacrificed to idols. 
So Paul deals with that at length. Disputable matters are not fundamental doctrines of the faith. Disputable matters are not things that are clearly spelled out as sin. So if you think someone is sinning, you should be able to go to a chapter and verse that, that identifies that as sin. If you can't do that, it means that that they may not be sinning. You need to back off that and realize they just might be violating your rules, not God's rules. So disputable matters are, are things like, I don't know, do Christians celebrate Christmas or do they dance or do they drink alcohol or, you know, what kind of clothing do they wear or uh, what's the hair length? You know, these things are just debated ad nauseum on and on and on and on. Right? That That's really a decision that God gives to you. That's a wisdom decision right? that you have to make. And the decisions I make are going to be different than the decisions you make. And I'm not to judge you for yours, and you're not to judge me for mine. Now, we can discuss these things. You can ask, well, why is it that you do that? Or why is it that you do that? And we can have some reason and some, I think, beneficial dialogue of, of sharpening one another's thinking. But we're not to judge one another. And that's what was going on. That's what Paul is correcting. Do not judge one another. Um, you know, he, he says in verse 5 there, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. And he says in verse 10, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So he's going to just say, look, each person, there are, there are things in your life that you're going to answer to God for, and no one else can hold you accountable. The Lord will. Right? It's your decision to make. Right? We would, sometimes we would like the Lord to specify, give us more details, but in his wisdom, he's chosen not to. So we have all the word that we need, and he wants you to make wise decisions with that. Right? So that's that's really what he's what he's talking about. And keep in mind that, uh, it, that this area of judging one another in, in disputable matters has got to be a, a high percentage of at the heart of all like church splits. I, I don't know what the statistic is, but it's involved in most of those. You know, major doctrinal splits or doc splits over major doctrine, fundamental doctrine. Those are, I think, more on the rare side, especially today. Mostly it's over these these other matters. Right? And, and that just should not be within the Lord's church when he's given us such clear, clear directions here. We are not to judge one another. Now, at this point, hopefully, the Lord has stepped on your toes a few times. What do you do if you fail? You realize, you know, I've blown it. I've spoken critical words. Right? Know that you're in good company. Everybody in here has failed all these commands that I've mentioned at one point or another to one degree or another. The good news is, God forgives. That he longs for you to, to just confess your failure to him, ask for his forgiveness, and ask him for help and strength to do what is right. And, and he gives that. We have such a wonderful God. He has every right to criticize us. Just think about it. Like You're imperfect, I'm imperfect. But you know how easily we see other people's faults? I mean, it's so easy. Think about God's position. He is truly perfect. Do you think it's easy for him to see your faults? Yes. So easy. He doesn't have to search and know them. He knows them already. He's, just, he's God, so he knows it all. He doesn't have to discover them. And yet, he's what? Patient with you. He's patient. Calling you to repentance. Calling you to Christ-likeness. He doesn't demand that you become like Christ instantaneously. He doesn't come down and say, get with it. You've been a Christian for 20 years and you're acting that way? Come on. I mean, we do that, right? And sometimes we criticize ourselves that way. But God doesn't. Now, that doesn't mean, don't overreact, don't go the other direction. That doesn't mean God doesn't take righteousness and holiness seriously. He does. But understand that he is forgiving. Now, all this is kind of like what I'll put as the the put off. Let's very quickly cover the put on. So repentance is about putting off the old man, putting on the new man. So to control sinful criticism, you not only stop talking, you know, saying evil things about one another, you stop that, that groaning against one another, you stop judging, 
But here's what you the positive. Learn how to constructively criticize. Learn how to criticize constructively. You and I need to learn how to rebuke and how to criticize constructively. There are times when when we need to provide criticism to, towards one another or our attitudes or decisions. So what do we do? And I just need to cover these quickly. We will we'll weave back in through these as we talk about seeking restoration in future messages. But to learn how to criticize constructively, just, just follow this little pattern and you will begin building the habit. First of all, pray. Don't, don't criticize. Don't offer criticism. Don't let criticism brew in your heart without praying. I mean, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says to pray without ceasing. If that's true all the time, it is especially true when we're getting ready to do something that could be sinful. If we don't put a check on our hearts and examine our hearts before the Lord, then we could be sinning against the Lord by offering criticism that the Lord doesn't want us to make. We need to remember that faithful are the wounds of a friend. So we do want to come as a friend. There are times we do that, but don't do that without prayer. And I would add this, that don't expect instantaneous change. Even you go through all these steps, and you, you provide some constructive criticism, give the person time to meditate on that and think upon that. Remember how you change? Do you always change instantaneously at a snap of your finger when you see what you're supposed to do in Scripture, when you see a sin in Scripture? No, it, it takes time. Right? The Holy Spirit works through conviction, bringing conviction over time. So we too need to be patient in this. We pray. Pray not only... To, to ask the Lord to examine your own heart, but, but pray the other person would receive that criticism in a constructive way. Pray for wisdom about the timing of the, of the criticism. Maybe you have something that's, that you need to say, but the timing of when you say that is really important as well. Um, secondly, check your attitudes and motives. It's really a heart check. It goes along with prayer. But really seek to understand your own motives. And if you don't understand your motives, then ask the Lord for wisdom. You must. You are going. You are getting ready to act as a representative of Christ, as a representative of Medina Bible Church, right? So carry your actions in that way. You must act in love. Is the criticism that you have motivated by love for the other person, love for Christ, love for His church? You must. You must not act out of frustration, anger, hurt feelings, or vindictiveness. Speak only for the person's upbuilding. Listen to Strzok's wise counsel on this, and I quote, Before we offer any criticism, we should ask ourselves, is it really necessary that I comment critically about a certain person? Is it my place to criticize? Have I fallen into a sinful habit of fault-finding and criticizing others? Does my criticism of another brother or sister violate the commands of Scripture? Unquote. So check your attitudes, check your heart. And then while you're doing that, ask yourself, am I walking in the Spirit? Am I walking in humility? Am I walking in the truth? Am I controlling my anger? Am I controlling my tongue? Thirdly, in addition to prayer, checking your attitudes and motives, thirdly, when you do speak, speak gently. Commit yourself to speak gently. Uh, Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs it up. So when you do go, go to speak gently. Now speak gently because it helps the other person receive what you're going to say. So it's, it's an act of love. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, so if you need help with that, ask God for help. Fourthly, balance criticism with words of encouragement. So give thoughtful consideration to the words you need to use. If you look at, at Jesus' pattern in Revelation, when he confronts the, the seven churches there, right, for most of them, he begins with commendation. He says, these are, these are good things you're doing. And then he addresses, you know, a, a sinful habit. There's only one church that doesn't get really uh, confronted by something sinful. The rest are commended. Paul follows much the same pattern in his letters. When he has to correct something within a church, he'll provide some commendation. This isn't, this isn't fluff. This is encouragement that to, to, to tell the church that you, you're not doing everything wrong. You're doing these things right. Keep doing these, but address these other issues. And sometimes as, as believers, we just get so focused on that one critical thing, that becomes the myopic 
thing. It becomes the lens through which we see the whole person's life through. And that, that's, that's not accurate. Fifth, use scripture to instruct. Kind of hinted at this earlier. If you have criticism that, that you think is needed to, for the benefit of the other person's life, you should be able to use scripture and, and uh, in its context, not misuse it, not twist it, but use it, point it to them, use it. Because why? Because scripture is what's going to convince the other person that you're right, if, if you're right. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God would be, may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it's the word of God that's, that is going to do that, the heart work in that person's life. And then lastly, welcome criticism. You know, the, the best people to give criticism are those who regularly receive it. What do I mean by that? Well, and I just give an example. So in my preaching uh, classes, we have to give feedback on some of our other sermons, some of the other students in the class. And, and the, the best feedback that I got was from uh, a professor of preaching. Right? He's, he's used to giving, but he's also used to used to receiving. He's, he's used to that. And when I say best, it's not that he gave me my best review. That's not true. right? What I mean is he, he gave me the, the most helpful comments on things that I needed to address in a way that, that I could receive them. It wasn't like, he did this wrong, he did this wrong. And he, he came along and he's very gentle, very soft, but pointed and specific. And so if you, if you welcome criticism, I mean, None of us like criticism, but when criticism comes, if you will learn how to receive it well, you will be much better in then giving it. And I don't mean like retaliation. Well, you said this to me. I'm not going to get you. No, that, that's not what I'm talking about. But receive it. Right? Learn how to receive it. Learn how to welcome it. And it will it will help you. And, and remember, too, that receiving criticism is, is wise. Uh, Proverbs 9, 8 says, uh, Do not reprove a scoffer lest he hate you. Reprove a wise man. And he will love you. So those that come, if they're if they're coming in the right way, are coming because they love you. They're not hate you. They're not trying to destroy you or tear you down. They're coming out of love. So learning how to provide constructive criticism is crucial to avoiding sinful criticism of one another. John Newton is is probably best known for writing the song "Amazing Grace," and he once wrote a letter to a friend who was a, a fellow pastor, and he was, that pastor was about to publish an article refuting a fellow minister's Arminian theology. He was a Calvinist, and he was going to refute his Arminian um, brother. But John Newton wrote to him and warned him, uh, gave him advice, to say, about how he would do that. And let me just read some of that to you. This is from John Newton. I'll just quote him. The Lord... This is John writing to his friend right, who's going to provide criticism. The Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. In a little while, you will meet in heaven. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. He also wrote this. If our zeal is embittered by expressions of anger, invective or scorn, we may think we are doing service to the cause of truth, when in reality, we shall only bring it into discredit. The weapons of our warfare, in which alone are powerful to break down the strongholds of error, are not carnal, but spiritual. Thirdly, you may be instrumental to their edification, if the law of kindness, as well as of truth, regulates your pen. Otherwise, you may do them harm. There is a principle of self which disposes us to despise those who differ from us, and we are often under its influence when we think we are only showing a becoming zeal in the cause of God. He also wrote this, We find but very few writers of controversy who have not been manifestly hurt by it. Either they grow in a sense of their own importance or imbibe an angry, contentious spirit. What will it profit a man if he gains his cause and silences his adversary if at the same time he loses the humble, tender frame of spirit which the Lord delights? 
Your aim, I no doubt, is good. But you have need to watch and pray, for you will find Satan at your right hand to resist you. And he added this, The longer I live, the more I see of the vanity and the sinfulness of our unchristian disputes. They eat up very the very vitals of religion. I grieve to think how often I have lost my time and my temper that way in presuming to regulate the vineyards of others when I have neglected my own, when the beam in my own eye has so contracted my sight that I could discern nothing but the mote in my neighbor's. I am now desirous to choose a better part. I allow that every branch of gospel truth is precious, that errors are abounding, and that it is our duty to bear an honest testimony to what the Lord has enabled us to find comfort in and to instruct with meekness such as are willing to be instructed. But I cannot see it my duty. Nay, I believe it would be my sin to attempt to beat my notions into other people's heads. Too often I have attempted in times past, but now I judge that both my zeal and my weapons were carnal. Oh, what wise words he wrote. And you can look over all of that if you go to Lewis and Roth Publishing, Lewis and Roth Publishing, and look at the free downloads uh, under Alexander Strzok's book, uh, If You Bite and Devour. There's a whole article uh, that he has, and even more than what I read to you. Beloved, don't peck at each other like Christians. Honor the Lord. Be patient, kind, loving, and constructive. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, what a challenge these instructions are to all of us. Lord, we have failed, failed to keep your law, failed to keep the law of love, failed your instructions. Inadvertently, Lord, we have stepped forward as judges, not allowing you to be the judge or thinking we could somehow do a better job. Lord God, we confess these as sin. And we just ask that you would work in us the great desire to not speak against our brother, not groan against them in our heart, not judge them in our heart or by our speech. And when criticism is needed and necessary, help us to learn how to give constructive criticism that, that works good for the love. Oh Lord, just work in our lives a greater conformity to Jesus Christ, our Savior, whom we love. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.